Please remain standing. The gospel lesson is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Hear the gospel of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord Please be seated. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, as we mentioned last week, Paul begins to pray. But he breaks off the prayer. Breaks the prayer off to elaborate further on this mystery of Jew and Gentile being reconciled in one new man. And finally, in our text today, he gets back to the prayer. This is the second time in Ephesians that Paul has given us a window into his prayer life. So it is good for us to again stop and note some things about the Apostles' intercession. You might remember back in Ephesians 1 that Paul prayed for us to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. He prayed that we would have the eyes of our heart enlightened so that we could know three things. You might recall the hope of our calling, our future calling, our future hope, the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, and the great power which God exercises toward us in the risen and exalted Christ. Has your prayer life been shaped by those things in the intervening weeks? That is, after all, the purpose of listening to the Word of God. Those are the things that Paul prayed for. We are challenged to have our prayers shaped that way. Here, he's going to pray for power and love and knowledge and for the divine fullness of life in the church. And so the priority of the apostles' prayers is very instructive to us. Paul is a big picture guy. He never loses the forest for the trees in life. 
What is driving and shaping his prayers are the grand eternal purposes of God in Jesus Christ. And he never loses sight of this in the tyranny of the immediate interruptions and digressions. This is the lifeblood of the apostles' speech with God his Father. This great salvation hidden in these eternal, inscrutable counsels of God, wrought in the death and resurrection of Christ, now on display in the church, the one new man. This is the frame, the driving force for his petitions for the people of God. Some of you are already thinking, that sounds awfully abstract. <laughs> right? One can read these prayers... I'm convinced a lot of American Christians read these prayers and think they are not practical. Why doesn't, we might ask, Paul pray for the nuts and bolts issues that real people face on the ground in their daily lives? What's with all of this eternal purpose, inscrutable this and eternal that and one new man and Jew and Gentile? But it would be a terrible mistake to think that way. Right? These requests, these are the nuts and bolts for Paul. This is the stuff of apostolic, kingdom-oriented praying. And as we said earlier on Ephesians 1, too many of our requests center on a purely immediate, short-term concerns. If no one is sick and no one is out of work, some of us have a hard time praying. And when we do pray, prayer too often becomes for us a form of crisis management rather than a way of kingdom-oriented life. A way to illustrate this that I've used occasionally with people is when you pray for someone to be healed, say person X is sick and you pray for person X to get better and say person X gets better. But like Lazarus, that person's going to get sick again. So they get sick 10 years later, you pray for them again. Wondrously they're healed and so on and so forth Eventually, they're going to die. What do you want for that person when you're praying for their healing? This is sort of suppressed. We don't often bring this to the surface of our consciousness. But what we want is the resurrection from the dead. Right? We want the kingdom to come. We want death to be shattered. This is why we pray for people in the hospital. Because we're oriented to the eschatological kingdom of God which is broken in in Christ. We're not simply about people having a little more pleasant existence on the planet. It's disordered, beloved, for us to pray for a thousand different people to be healed and never, ever, ever, ever pray for death itself to be shattered. You have the Kiwanis Club for that. Go do that somewhere else, at the Rotary or someplace. The church is the people of the eschatological kingdom of God. We want people to be healed because healing is a sign of the kingdom. 
You get up in the morning. You have a to-do list. Maybe it's mental. Maybe for some of us it's written down. Right across the top of that to-do list should be the words, the resurrection of the dead. That's the point of the Apostles' Creed. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Did you look for it this week? I look for it. It's at the top of my to-do list. And if we pay attention to the things we do pray, we would realize, if we followed the logic out, that that's in fact what we are about. We want the cemeteries empty. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. It's a wonderful thing to pray for our concrete needs. Our Father cares about every hair on our head. There's no need too small for His attention. We ought and we must pray for these things. But in Paul, we meet one who is also and fundamentally an intercessor for the kingdom. He's teaching us to try and live out of the strategic purposes of God. And as such, his prayers open up new horizons for us. And so with that, we're going to make four points. I'm going to make four points on this text. The family, power, love, and then the doxology. So the family, power, love, and the doxology. So the first point is the family. The petition begins, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, by invoking God the Father. And this is not an appeal to God as, as just some universal fatherhood. It's an appeal to the Father of the church, the children adopted in Christ. And prayer is always made to this benevolent, gracious, glorious Father. Jesus taught His disciples to pray. Our Father. And not only is Father important in the opening of the Lord's Prayer, the word our is equally crucial. We do not pray the my Father. We pray the our Father. And so prayer is always to have this deep corporate consciousness, this family consciousness. We see this here in verse 15 where the Father He invokes is the one, this is a marvelous phrase, the one from whom every family, or in some translations the whole family, in heaven and earth derives its name. When Paul thinks of the fatherhood of God, He thinks of it over the church as entailing one family, embracing Jew and Gentile, living and dead, spanning heaven and earth. When we pray, we pray in that company, inside that family. And thus there's always a lot of eavesdropping going on when we are praying. This is crucial because this sense of solidarity with the church, the whole church, which the Apostle exhibits, it's this which helps move us out beyond our immediate needs into the mission of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so prayer, especially public prayer, because there the idea of praying with others comes to the fore. Prayer is made in the family, with the family, for the family. 
It's prayer made to our Father, the one from whom the whole Christian family in heaven and earth derives its name. That's the family. The second point is the power. In verse 16, we can see how the apostle wants God to grant this request. He asks that God would respond out of His glorious riches, that we would be, the text says, strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. The Spirit, the the Nicene Creed tells us, is the Lord and giver of life. He quickens and actuates all things. And Paul wants the Spirit to strengthen you with power in the inner man. Now the power that the Apostle prays for here is not spectacular. Right? There are, there's, there's no pyrotechnics here. It's interior power. Power in the inner man. Power to live out of the abundant riches which are ours in Christ. Reminds me of the story I heard of this boy, little young boy who fell into a big barrel, a huge vat of molasses and prayed, Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. (laughs) Paul, Paul wants your spiritual capacity to be opened up through the power of the Spirit. But he rephrases this request He rephrases it in verse 17 where he asks that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The reception of the Spirit to empower you in the inner man means this. Now note this well. It means that Christ comes to dwell in us. To receive the Spirit is to receive the risen Christ. So to have spiritual power is simply to have Christ come and inhabit, to dwell more fully, more completely, more prominently in the church. Again, I think it's good to ask, do we pray for this? I think we think, when's the last time you prayed, let me put it this way, perhaps a little more provocatively, for Christ to come and dwell in the hearts of another believer? Because we think, well, Christ already dwells in the hearts of believers. That's taken care of. How can that be a fundamental, apostolic, strategic need for any Christian? They already have the Holy Spirit. They already have Christ dwelling in their hearts. And so you can see how far apart we are from the apostolic heart here. Paul knows that Christ dwells in your hearts, and his first prayer is that by the power of the Spirit, you'd be strengthened so that Christ would dwell more fully in your hearts. He wants Him to inhabit and to rule, to take up permanent residence in your inner life through the Spirit. And there's no dwelling place into which the risen Christ comes that He leaves intact or unchanged. This is a prayer that's going to mess with your stuff. And that's why no petition is more important, more concrete, or more practical than this petition. This is what we mean when we pray for power. The third point is love. Love. In the second half of verse 17, we can see what the apostle expects 
of Christ coming to dwell in us through the Spirit. It is that you'd be rooted and established or grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. We could say love should be radical, foundational in our lives. So the Apostle is praying for us, teaching us to pray for one another, that the taproot of our existence, our inner man, be established, be deeply nourished on, drink from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now again, everybody knows this, and to some extent, all true believers have tasted it. But it's this sense of yearning that's absent in us. Now, here we see something, I think, basic, but we never outgrow the gospel. Right? The gospel is not simply for unbelievers or even for new Christians. It's our daily bread. And that means we never outgrow the need for the love of God. About 12 or 15 years ago, there was a Pulitzer Prize winning play it was later turned into a wonderful film starring Emma Thompson uh, called Wit. And, and Thompson, she plays an English professor named Vivian. And she's a scholar of the 17th century poet John Donne. She's an expert on Donne's holy sonnets, which are allegories of the soul's thirst for the love of God. And Vivian, the professor, comes down with terminal cancer. And of course, all of her learning can't help her. And it's sad to see that she hasn't grasped the basic point of Dunn's poetry or ever really tasted the love of God. And nearing the end, she lies crumpled up in a fetal position and she looks into the camera and she says, Now is the time for simplicity. Now is the time for kindness. And it's a cry for love in the face of death. And she's teetering on the brink, and just before she dies, one of her old professors visits her in the hospital, the only visitor she has. And the professor brings her five-year-old grandson, and they begin to read a portion of a story called The Runaway Bunny to her. I think we had this book when my kids were little. Some of you may know this book. It's called The Runaway Bunny. And so her professor begins reading. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I'm running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. At which point the professor looks over at Vivian and says, look at that, a little allegory of the soul. Wherever it hides, God will find it. Do you see, Vivian? And there's no reply. Vivian's already slipped out of consciousness. She dies alone. She hears of the love of God barely as she departs this world. 
See, a, a person can hear of the love of God. You can deal with texts which celebrate the love of God your whole life and yet tragically never experience that love. Right? It's one thing to confess that the Lord loves you. Paul insists here that we need to know the love of God desperately that Christ brings us in the Spirit's power. Jesus loves us. This we know for the Bible tells us so. And this we continually need to know. And this is theology at its highest and its most practical. I remember the story of the European theologian Karl Barth. And, uh, you know, one of the most prominent intellectuals in, in Europe in the middle of the 20th century. Swiss-German theologian, and he writes these turgid, you know, long theological tomes, and his theology is complicated and not completely orthodox. We wouldn't certainly agree with it at many points. But Bart was the type of European figure who could have a press conference, and toward the end of his life he had a press conference, and he was asked about summarizing his theology. And he said, it, it boils down to this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The text is equally insistent that to taste the love of God fully, we have to be in communion with the church, the one family in heaven and on earth. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. Paul says that, uh, praise that we'd have this power with all the Lord's holy people. That's with all the saints to grasp or to comprehend how wide and how high and how deep and how long is the love of Christ. Right? Wide enough to embrace the world. Long enough to go on for eternity. High enough to raise you to heaven and deep enough to lift you out of despair and woe. Notice though, we need power to grasp the vastness of the love of Christ. But it's a power and a grasp that only takes place, the text says, with all the Lord's people. You can't do this in your private quiet time. One of the first things this prayer would do if we read it and obeyed it, it would push us out to be with the Lord's people. With the Lord's people means with the Lord's people. The Greek for with actually means with, which means you have to spend time with them. You have to be with them. You can't be isolated. The whole prayer, as we said at the outset, is corporate in nature. You can't know the love of Christ in any mature way in isolation. And this is not just a quirk of Paul's praying. God himself does not exist in isolation. He's a community of love, a communion of persons. So it is with the church. If we're going to know this love in its height and depth, in its breadth and length, we're going to know it only in communion with one another. Paul comes to the capstone of his prayer with this stupendous phrase at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled up. So we know this love. We know the magnitude of this love. And the end of it is that we might be filled up 
to all the fullness of God. This is something that Paul keeps coming back to. Remember in Ephesians 1, he called the church the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Here he's reached the climax of the prayer. And his desire is very simple. But it's unfathomable. It is that God the Father give the Son through the Spirit, thus filling up the church with all the fullness of His divine life. Do we ever pray like this? I suspect we would think a prayer like this just doesn't touch down close enough to what people are wanting. Or even what they need, sadly. So our deficiency here is twofold. We do not have a vision of the overflowing fullness of the triune life and light and love of God. God is sort of weightless, as they say. We're not ravished or enraptured by God Himself. You know, it's very easy to be a Christian for a long time and not get this first thing right. You can say Christian things and do Christian things and and, and engage in Christian service, but it is in fact quite rare to meet Christians who are enthralled with the Holy Trinity, for whom God Himself is the great chief passion. How do you know this? Well, you can just listen to what they talk about over time. And because this is the case with us, we have a greatly weakened sense, all of us, of our own emptiness, of our own poverty and our need. Generally, people pray for what they perceive to be their greatest need at that point. And so when you listen to prayer lists, people are telling you, this is where I think my real poverty lies. But this text says that our greatest need, in fact, in one sense, our only need, is that God in Christ, through the Spirit, fill up the church corporately with the fullness of His love. Again, do not miss the forest for the trees in your life. Pray for the first things, the transcendent things, the permanent things, and then go pray for the other stuff as well. So think, as we close here, think of the scope, the range, the sheer holy hubris of this prayer. The apostle wants the church, in all of her weakness, right? You and me, all of us, right? He wants her to embody the measure of the fullness of God in the earth, I think it's fair to say that never has a more audacious prayer than this been uttered. And if it makes our prayer seem too mundane or myopic, then so be it. Let's receive the correction the text is giving us. Our final point, the doxology. Just in case we think that Paul may have overshot himself with this request, he ends the petition with a doxology in verses 20 and 21. God is able to do immeasurably more. Some translations say exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or even think or imagine. So Paul is reminding us, if you think this prayer is staggering, 
You still have no vision of the God to whom I am praying. God can far exceed this petition. Now, I don't know what far exceeding this petition would look like. He can, he can go exceedingly, abundantly beyond what I've just prayed for. By the power that's in work in you. By sending Christ through the Spirit to dwell in your midst. So let me return to the earlier remark. We're tempted to see this request as too highfalutin. But this would be an error. It's our prayers sometimes reflect a seeing that is out of proportion. And so we can learn then from John Donne, Vivian's lifelong object of study in the movie Wit. Not in his holy sonnets, but in another poem, Dunn says this, Thou lookest through spectacles. Small things seem great below. But up unto the watchtower get and see all things despoiled of fallacies. So Dunn is saying we need to take off the spectacles that make small things seem great. And then we need to climb up into the watchtower from which Paul is praying and there see everything stripped of fallacies. It's only there and only then that we begin to pray in earnest. And so let's learn the grammar, the basic grammar, the syntax of apostolic praying. And let our prayers for ourselves and for Westminster Presbyterian Church be shaped by this petition. In this manner, in this manner, as the text concludes, we will see the glory of God in Christ and in the church to all generations forever and ever. Amen.